Hi there, and welcome back to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser, and every week I will speak with incredible people who share their lessons, experiences, and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. Hi there, and welcome back again to this week's episode. If you're new to the show, then please take a second to subscribe and even consider sharing the show with just one other person. This week, I am joined by Tony Cole. Tony is an incredible vice president of uh, US operations with over 30 years experience of engineering. Tony, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Sure. So my name is Tony Cole, and uh, I work for a company here in the States as Vice President of Operations and got my undergraduate degree from Eastern Kentucky University in fire protection and got my master's degree from Wooster Polytechnic Institute, also in fire protection engineering. And I've been in the business about uh, 30 plus years. Excellent. So how did you get started in the energy sector? Well, I, uh, I kind of took a... Um, a roundabout route. I, uh, I woke up at three years old and I wanted to be uh, a firefighter and that was it. Pursued that right out of high school. I um, got on the fire department and, and was living the dream. And uh, as most firefighters do, you go out and, and do inspections and I happened to go to uh, a process facility, walked in and I saw all the pumps and the pipes and the reactors and the columns and the vessels. And I thought that was the coolest thing that I've ever seen in my life. And I was talking to a guy there who was the, uh, the fire chief and the site fire protection engineer. And this is back in the, the early to mid eighties. And so fire protection engineering was, was relatively new still at the time and still is, I guess, when compared to other engineering disciplines. And so I, uh, I kind of pursued that and, and, there were, there were people that, that I kind of looked up to in the industry. And so um, I went and got my, uh, my bachelor's degree and continued to pursue that, that thirst or desire to, to be in the energy sector, uh, particularly with the process, oil and gas industry. And found myself in the mid, I guess, late 90s, an opportunity to go over to the Middle East, to Saudi Arabia. And I immediately jumped on that and went to work for Saudi Ramco over there and was really kind of living the dream. I was doing fire protection engineering and, and firefighting at the same time. And so I was one of those guys that, that just woke up and kind of looked at that career and knew that's what I wanted versus other people who maybe have gone through college and kind of fell into it one way or another. But that's, that's how I kind of got into it and, and never left. Okay. You were saying that you started off as a firefighter. What made you change over to the energy sector? So I, I, I changed over to the energy sector, but I never really left the fire service. I looked at people like Les Williams and Dwight Williams from, from Williams Fire and Hazard Control, Red Adair. And I, I liked that mixture of both the engineering aspect of things from uh, the process industries, whether it's um, fixed systems or, or risk assessments or, or looking at the hazards from an engineering perspective. But uh, because the energy sector is, is the way it is, uh, you find yourself still in that firefighter mentality and in that firefighter position. So many people uh, in, in process facilities kind of fill both roles, even, even operators who 
who are just unit operators. So it was an opportunity for me to really kind of do both things. So I hate to say I was, you know, engineer by day or firefighter by night, but that's really what I enjoyed about the profession, really. And, and a lot of people, it's such a niche market. It's such a it's it's a niche market and has a huge demand. And so I've I've been able to be uh, successful doing that. No, that sounds amazing. So who was your role model in your career and why did you find them inspirational? So I, I really had a couple different role models uh, early in my career. Um, I'd have to say um, pro- probably Dwight Williams would, would be one of my role models. Um, you know, I um, had the opportunity to meet him and then we've developed a, a, a good friendship and we're still very close friends today. Um, over the past uh, 30 years or so. And, and I think the reason I, I liked him was I liked his approach to things. I liked his um, attitude. I liked the way that he interacted with people. I'd have to say on, on the engineering side, I would say probably Jim Rosewell. He was one of the first senior engineers I worked with um, out of college. And what he taught me was a way to think and, and interact and understand complex challenges, how to break them down from an analytical perspective that sitting down and looking at a complex engineering issue many times can be broken down into much smaller bits and pieces and, and allow you to analyze it on a more intrinsic perspective. And so both those guys, I think, really um, – inspired me from the perspective that they took a young kid who didn't know anything. And, and, and as most young engineers who come out of college, you know, they, uh, they've got the fancy calculator and they think they can do everything. And I was one of those kids. And so they really set me down and really helped mold my, my view on, on how things are done and, and how to be a, a good engineer. And so I really look upon both those individuals and, and just can see where I am today and the guidance that I've taken from them. And I think that's, that helped me be successful. Oh, that sounds amazing. And he sounds like an amazing role model as well. What is your most challenging thing about your current role and how do you handle it? <laughs> you know, that's, that's a good question. There's really, I guess, two aspects of my role that, that is challenging. And that is one, making sure that we, we meet the client's needs. Um, that's really important to me. And so trying to understand from someone who is perhaps not a, uh, an expert or uh, someone who does not have the expertise in that particular field, uh, trying to understand what, what in fact their, their problem is. So before we can analyze and provide solutions, we have to clearly understand what it is. So it's really challenging sometimes, particularly working internationally, because what we use in the States and the terminology there is different than my, my 20 plus years in the Middle East. And so, and I've, I've worked through Southeast Asia, Africa, and Europe. And so really understanding the different nuances that the clients bring, the different viewpoints and the different lens in which they, they have these problems. And, and many times just the vernacular used in, in a description of what's going on is different so really, that's, that's a big challenge. So there's language barriers that you have to work through, cultural barriers that, that, that you have to work through. And then just, again, understanding the client's perspective from their viewpoint, from their lens. And so it's really challenging. So it really takes a lot of patience and understanding 
and a lot of listening, not not hearing, not the physical act of hearing, but listening and acknowledging what the client is saying, exploring further, and then responding, not necessarily just jumping the gun. So I would say that's that's probably one of the the biggest challenges. The second challenge really is staffing, is just finding the staff that that you can bring on board that that have that desire to do that. A lot of times when I when I interview people, I'm not really interviewing you on your technical knowledge. So a lot of times when I interview people, particularly younger people, they want to tell me everything that they know to, to show me from a technical perspective that I, I can do the job. And so I, I don't doubt that when you graduate from a recognized university, uh, I, I make certain assumptions that you understand the base knowledge. What I'm really looking for is something completely different. I'm looking for attitude. I'm looking for initiative. I'm looking for, for work ethic. I can teach anybody the job. I can teach anybody how to analyze complex process safety problems or complex industrial fire protection problems. And that technical aspect we can work through. But what I can't train you to do is, is come to work, be on time, provide that service, have good work ethic, uh, be a team player, think about the company and not, not necessarily about yourself and what's best for, for, for the success of the company. That's a challenge, really, Michelle. You know, that's probably one of the biggest, those are probably the two biggest things that we face right now. Okay, that's interesting. You were saying before that you teach, you can teach people how to analyze problems, maybe troubleshoot as well. How do you go about doing that, teaching someone that? Because that's a skill that a lot of people would probably wish that they had. You know, it's really, it's really using the, the skill set of that individual. You know, engineers in, in general have a certain make about them. Uh, they tend to be analytical. They tend to ask a lot of questions. They tend to look at problems through a different lens than that of someone who is, who's not of that mindset. So really it's guiding that person to ask the right questions, to focus on the right level of details. Because it's really, it's really easy for young engineers to get really hyper-focused on some of the details that are ancillary to the problem. And so sitting down with them and asking them, you know, uh, what do you see is, is the problem? How, how are you going to approach the problem? What methodology are you going to use? Unfortunately, we have some really good documents out there that we can use for guidelines. But really what I'm trying to do to that young individual is to um, not necessarily jump right into it, but kind of review the project or the issue, the problem, try to gather some thoughts about it, and really just try to get them to focus on the, the issues that are important. So an example would be, you know, if I, if I have a flat tire and I want you to analyze that flat tire, there's no need to check the oil. Checking the oil is important and it helps the vehicle run, but you're kind of starting off in the wrong spot. So what I really like to do is just try to get them lined up so they're kind of geared up, you know, heading towards the the right spot of what we're trying to analyze in, in a particular problem. Okay, excellent. So what do you enjoy most about your current role? I, I love my job. I I love everything about it. It affords me the opportunity to work in, in a field such as fire protection engineering that is just, to me, it's different every day. 
people call me with unique problems. And in fact, I, I had two clients, two new clients today call me with some just very unique problems. And so I enjoy that aspect of things. I enjoy the aspect that the fire protection engineering field affords me to still keep my hands within the fire service. So we we do a lot of emergency response planning. We work with, with local process companies, process agencies, energy companies. We also work with local fire departments. So really, I know it's going to sound probably odd in this day and age, but I'm one of those individuals that I get up, I enjoy coming to work. I love what I do. And I can't see me ever doing anything else. I, I don't see me ever wanting to jump this. I The energy sector is such a um, unique market to to work in. To me, it's fascinating that you can take a product coming out of the ground, some sort of gas, natural gas or whatever. And then as you go through the process, at the end of the day, I have an iPhone case or I have a, a plastic cup. That to me is is, a, is amazing, that, that process. So I'm just one of those individuals, Michelle, that I just I love my job. Yeah, I can hear that as well. But I think most engineers really love their jobs as well, though. Like I don't, I've not met an engineer that hasn't, that doesn't really love what they do, actually. What is the hardest, the hardest problem that you've, that a client has come to you to resolve? (laughs) Wow. The hardest problem. We've had situations where because of the nature of the particular process, there was really no guidance it was a it was a high hazard situation. Um, there was really no guidance in terms of what codes or standards would be available to, to, to help guide you. There wasn't any insurance documents. There wasn't any sort of white paper. Or you know, a lot of times, in the absence of that, people will fall onto what what is industry practice. You know, what is the best industry practice? And in this particular case, there wasn't anything. And so it really forced us to sit down and really tackle this problem. And one of the big obstacles was obviously getting the situation approved by the local authority, who traditionally come from a background of, uh, of a prescriptive code-based approach in terms of, of approvals. And this was well outside any sort of prescriptive-based approach. So it was really difficult in the sense that one, we had to understand what the hazards were uh, and and other issues associated with this particular problem. But then we had to educate the local authorities and the government on what we were doing. And so you're trying to take a very complex problem and explain to government authorities and agencies who who perhaps maybe don't have that particular background or skill set and try to present it in a manner that they understand. And I think um, a lot of engineers falter in that sometimes, particularly young engineers. They want to talk at a very, very high level, and that's not what is needed. Uh, what we need to be able to do is talk at a level that is commensurate with the person we're talking. So in this particular case, it just was a situation where we just really had to work to understand the problem, come up with viable solutions that weren't going to cost, uh, you know, a, a bazillion dollars, but at the same time, work with the government agencies and get it approved and understood so that uh, occupancy can begin and the process can start up. Okay. It is, and I do agree with you, taking technical, a technical problem or describing the 
technical solution can be hard, especially if you're, especially if the people that you're presenting to are non-technical and maybe, yeah, it is quite, that can be difficult for an engineer. It can be really difficult. And that's really a skill set too that gets you develop over time. And and, and I, I tell young engineers, if, if you can, if you can explain something to me in very high level, high highly technical terms, but you can't explain it to me in simple terms, then I'm going to think that you probably really don't understand the problem because you have to be able in your mind to take that high technical level, that that very detailed approach. And if you truly understand it, you'll be able to explain it in those simple terms. And it's hard because you are trying to match up what what the receiver, that information actually knows and understands and what their particular skill set is. So, so really, Michelle, that's a, to me, it's a sign of a really good engineer is, is, is taking that complex problem and trying to uh, break it down in, in simple terms to, to explain it to someone who's not in the profession. Yeah, I agree. If you're here, I would probably high five you actually. That is quite very true as well. I do agree with that answer. I think if you can't explain it as a technical person I think if you can't explain you need to be able to be able to explain something in a in really simplistic terms especially to your superiors as well who might not even have the time to get up to speed with what all the technical issues are so I think that is quite really good advice so thank you is there anything you still want to achieve in your career uh Really, what I want to continue to do is try to make a positive mark on the profession, not necessarily me as a person in terms of accolades or awards, because I don't, I don't I'm not really interested in that. What I'm interested in is, is giving back to the fire protection community and however I can help. Uh, when I was in the Middle East, I was quite active locally in, in Saudi and, and Oman and other areas that I lived in terms of giving back to the local community. And so I continue to do that today. So I would say that my career goals would be really focused on providing that advice to current clients, future clients, less, less fortunate countries, and who don't have access to the information that we have here, perhaps in the States or in Australia or, or Europe or other more populous countries, I, I I'd, li- I'd like to do that. That that's something that that I enjoy. I um, I really want to give back to the community, uh, the fire protection community, and uh, and however that may be, right? Whether it's through research or advice or a consultation or you know whatever whatever the case may be, that's probably my my number one focus right now. As as I kind of. I'm in the middle of my career, I guess. I, I hate to say how old I am, but <laughs> I uh, would like to focus on that, really. Uh, just just making sure that we we have that fire-safe world that, that everybody should be able to live in. No, I agree. That's, a, that's an amazing message. Thank you. I should have asked you this question before, actually. What makes an outstanding hire, in your opinion? If you were going to hire maybe a graduate or maybe a senior, what would you look for? One of the things I look for, I look for a couple of things when I when I look at, at CVs or resumes, and I, I look at I look at diversity of your experience. I look to see if you know you've got some academic experience, obviously through college. I look to see what your work experience is and the diversity within that work experience. 
I look to see if you list any personal hobbies. Uh, I look to see what type of uh, certifications or presentations that, that you may have done. And what I'm looking for really is an individual who is uh, well-rounded, and that's what these types of CVs tell me. I look for someone who is ambitious and, and a goal setter and looking at different presentations or certifications they may have, uh, have attained. And then I look to see what they've done. So, so really to me, it's, it's not about you went to XYZ college and you have this experience in the fire protection world. I'm looking for a lot more. And like I said earlier, when I'm looking at hiring, I'm looking at attitude, how you present yourself. I'm looking for team players. I, I have a great team right now. I, I love my team. The people that I have on my team, I, I consider to be the best in the business. And part of the reason is that we all chip in together. When one is down, the other one is up. And we, we work to, to do that. And so I, when I look for new hires, that particular chemistry is important to me because I don't want to upset the apple cart, if you will. So like I said earlier, you know, someone who is from that, from paper standpoint, someone who is well-rounded that have those things that I've talked about. But when I talk to you in person, it's really about how you carry yourself. It's about the passion that you have. It's about being a team player, uh, wanting to make a difference. Um, I, I'm not interested in individuals who want to sit behind a computer and generate Excel sheets. That's not that's not the my focus. Is not the focus of, of our company, and so that's not something that that we would um, really pursue. Okay, when you're interviewing someone, what type of questions would you ask them to actually ascertain whether they are a well-rounded individual? So a lot of times, I'll ask them, you know, on team projects, what roles have you filled in? Um, what do you like about team projects? Or if you're working on a project with another individual, maybe it's not a full team, maybe it's just someone else. How do you interact with them? How is, how is your office interactions? And then I ask them about, you know, what they do after work. You know, what, what type of things do you enjoy? And so usually within that conversation, what I'm listening for is things like I enjoy working in teams or I was on this team and, and, they elected me the leader of the team. I was on this team and we were successful doing this. And so using things like we in the conversation and team and my fellow colleagues, I listen for those words versus I did this, I did this, I did this. Um, so so I'll kind of tune into that. And then what I also want to know as a personal person, and and I do this when I give presentations, I want to know what you do as a person. You know, what, what, what do you like to do? And so a lot of times when I give presentations, I actually give two slides about myself and not because I like myself so much. It's just, I kind of give the, what I call the LinkedIn slide, right? This is all the fancy things that, that, that I've, I may have done over the, my career and where I went to school and things of this nature. And, and I call it my LinkedIn page uh, in my presentation. The next page is who I really am. Um, and I, I usually use highlights of, of things that I've done in the past, whether it's out hiking or hunting or camping or fishing or, or doing whatever. So I take that same approach in my interview. And that is, um, I want to know who you are as a person, because that's really going to dictate how you're going to interact with people in the office and what, what I can expect from you when things are going good and what I can expect from you from when things are going bad. Okay. That's a really good answer, actually. That would give a lot of value to a lot of people, actually. So, have you ever had any career disasters 
And what lessons did you did you learn from them? I, I, I think everybody's had career disasters. Always, you know, uh, I would say not of late, but early in my career when you're young and you know everything and you're fresh out of college and, and the ink is still wet on your diploma, you want to jump and rush to conclusions. You want to jump and rush and, and show how much you know. I think any young engineer does this, and I was no exception to that. So there were times early in my career where I just, you know, I was a bulldozer in a, in a china shop. <laughs> I really, you know, really made some mistakes and some goofs. And, and I look back upon um, a couple people, really, uh, on my firefighting career. I, I look back on to my first fire chief. And I remember him setting me down and just giving me a really good kind of father-son talk, if you will. And... That was uh, a long time ago, and I still talk to this individual. And during his retirement party a few years ago, I went and I said, listen, I probably owe you an apology, Chief, <laughs> for, for some of the things that I've done, and, and I'm probably responsible for a good percentage of the gray hair on your head. And he, he said, Tony, he says, you were one of the best guys that, that I ever had. And he says, those things that you did were just normal, common mistakes, and same thing with Jim Rosewell on the engineering side, you know, just sitting down and saying, look, you know, this is not your best work. <laughs> and so, so both cases kind of really molded, I think, me today. So, so yeah, I've had some career disasters early on in, in my career, and, and thank goodness um, I survived those. And those are the things that, that make you a better engineer. They make you a better leader, a better manager, and a better person. So I think if someone tells me that they've never had any career disasters, I'm going to kind of question question that really. Okay, I agree. I think we've all had them actually. So you were saying that a couple of your old bosses had father son. I think it was you said kind of discussions. What was the most important thing that you took away from from what they were trying to teach you? That's a good question. I, I, I took a couple things away. One, what I took away is that it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay. Two, it's okay to ask for advice. You, you don't have to act like you know everything or you don't have to try to impress anybody. It's okay to ask for advice. And number three, I would say, would be to tell the truth, to, to be honest with your clients and, and, and be honest with the people that you work with. I had a boss tell me one time that he said, I, I pay you for your opinion what I pay you for as an engineering consultant. I pay you for your opinion. And so you need to tell me your honest opinion. And so those three things really stuck with me. And I, I've always used those in, throughout my career, really, is, is that, you know, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to ask for advice. And as an engineering consultant, I'm paying for your opinion. So, so be honest with me. And out of that, I think that really kind of, to this day, has stuck with me. So I, I try to, when I talk to young engineers, I try to pass that information on and let them know that, hey, it, you're going to make mistakes. Don't, it's, it's fine. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get around it. And it's okay to ask for advice. Don't, don't get so far behind on a project that you've burned through all the consulting hours that we have for the project. And then you come and say, well, I've got all these problems. It's okay to ask for advice. 
And then the third thing that I always tell them is, is the same thing is, is I want your opinion. We have to tell the client the honest opinion, whether that's good news or bad news, we've, we've got to let them know. And, and so those things are important for me. I guess one little last antidote that I learned early on in, in my career during these kind of career disasters, if you will, I was uh, a young firefighter and the chief came in and I was sitting there in the, in the day room and he said, Oh, what are you doing? And I said, you know, not, nothing, Chief. Like I was like, you know, I'm not doing anything. He said, go, uh, go wash my car. I was like, okay. So I went out and washed his car, and and the next shift, I was sitting around the firehouse, and he came by and says, Cole, what are you doing? And I was like, like nothing, Chief. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm a young firefighter. I'm thinking, you know, I, nothing. And he said, okay, go wash my car. I said, okay. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I wasn't maybe so bright then, but it, it finally caught on. And so about the third, fourth time he came by and said, Cole, what are you doing? And I just blurted out, hard work and dedication, chief. And he stopped and he looked at me and says, okay, continue. And so to this day, it is almost a, an involuntary response when people say, how are you doing? I say, hard work and dedication. And so what I found myself saying is saying that is that that's what I look for is, is that hard work and dedication. So you know, early on in your career, you make these mistakes, but but at the end of the day, they mold you. And how you how you handle these mistakes, I think, really spell success in terms of your career. If you tackle them and, and, and move forward and, and listen to some of the advice that, that you, you have from your seniors, you're going to be fine. Those who can't accept those mistakes are going to have a miserable career. Okay. No, that's really a good advice, actually. So what would you say was your zone of genius? What are you most excellent at? What am I most excellent? I don't I don't know. You know, I, I guess I guess talking to clients is probably the best thing that I'm I'm good at is sitting down and listening to the client, understanding what they need and, and just building a relationship with the client. Other large engineering firms are are more inclined to talk to a client, get the project, submit the report, send an invoice, and it's on to the next project. Myself and our company have a different belief. And that is our belief is that we should build a relationship with our clients. And I think that's probably the best thing that I'm I'm good at is, is building that relationship, understanding the client's needs, understanding that we're here to help him and, and support him. And that if other things crop up, give us a call. It doesn't always have to be a, a contract and, and formal procedure. You know, give, give me a shout. And so um, I think if you talk to a lot of people that I've worked with, a lot of clients, they would probably say that about, about myself. And, and that is just developing and building those relationships. Okay. Excellent. So what motivates you to keep going when things get tough? Persistence and perseverance. I believe that was President Coolidge who said that persistence and, and perseverance. I'm, I'm very much a goal-oriented person, and my goal is to help the client. And when things get rough or muddy down in, in the mud, uh, it's just persistence and perseverance, really, just wanting to, to deliver to the client. They even trusted us with a particular problem. I think in, in our particular field, maybe a little bit different than some of the other fields, and that is if we fail in what we're doing, we could potentially have a large loss of life, whether it's a, a large uh, fire or explosion in a, in a facility. 
So people have entrusted us. And so that means that we're, we're entrusted with the name of that company and their reputation. So, so for me, it's, it's that persistence and perseverance. It's wanting to achieve the goal of client satisfaction and, and solving their problem. I think most engineers are like that. Um, you know, they're very much puzzle problem solvers. And so um, you get this innate desire to find the solution or find the, 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 the problem and find that solution and, and correct it. So I think to me, that's, that's probably what drives me the most is just wanting to deliver those, those products to the, to the customer. Okay. I was going to ask you, do you think it's a big responsibility having, because you work in the fire and gas industry and other industries as well, proper solving do you think it's quite a, it's quite a tough it's quite hard to have that responsibility on your shoulders to know that what you do can affect quite a lot of people around you even though if it's their health and safety or something like that it's a big responsibility and and i really make sure that i keep that in mind so so not only that perspective michelle but as a licensed professional engineer when i stamp a drawing i'm taking responsibility for that whether it's a small fire alarm or sprinkler system in a building, all the way up to a, a fire risk assessment at a large process industry. When I sign my name and I put my professional engineer seal on it, I'm taking responsibility for that. And so it is a responsibility because like you said, it, whether it's a large fire or explosion or you know, whatever the case may be, you know, there's, a, there's a, that God, God willing no issue but there's that possibility that you may have a large loss of life. And so versus a plumber who, and, and this is no slide on plumbers, but if the toilets don't work, the toilets don't work. We're, we're fine. I think in our particular profession, we have just a, a, a greater responsibility to, to life safety. To, and so that's something that, that I really hammer into the young engineers that we bring on board. Is, and that is, you know, the things that you say in your reports could have consequences that that are life changing for people. So, so really, Michelle, it, it really is something that I think about. I think it it helps form really how we operate in this profession. And, and I'm not; it's not exclusive to me. Every fire protection engineer I know and I've worked with have the same thoughts, and that is, we're here to protect life the best that we can. And so, um, everyone that I know in the profession, and it's a really small profession, and and there's it's really populated with just some of the, just some great, great, great people, great minds. And we all have that same mantra. And that is what we do, in fact, truly does make a difference on, on the health and safety of people. No, I agree. Because even when I sometimes get asked, yeah, I get, I get asked that question as well. And I always, I always say that the number one, the number one priority for me would is always got to be the, the whether whatever system I'm working on that it's got to be safe, because of course the, the men offshore, they're working on it, and so you have to think about their safety. And then the second point point would be that the obviously the design works, but I think safety comes really high for a lot of engineers. I would have thought, especially for me. I would it, it, you, mentioned, you mentioned offshore, Michelle. That it, it's not like you can. If you have a problem, you're going to, you know, run down the street. There, there's no street. Michelle, you're, you're 125, 150 feet in the air or higher on some of these larger platforms. And so, you know, making sure that those safety systems, the life 
the lifeboats and things like that are working, you know, that's a really um, hazardous environment. And then at, at the same time, even on onshore facilities, things happen at such a rapid pace. You may not have time to do anything other than duck just because it, it just happens so fast. It's not like a, you have a fire in a trash can or an office because uh, someone dropped a cigarette or, or whatever the case may be. And you've got, you know, the slower growth, you know, VCEs happen in milliseconds of vapor cloud explosions. They happen in milliseconds. You know, a, a high pressure vessel that's got three or 4,000 PSI, let's go. That happens within seconds. And so really making sure that you've identified these in your fire risk assessments or your process hazard or HAZOPs, identifying these is, is really important and you've got to be really cautious. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. How would you describe your typical working week? I wish I had a typical work week, Michelle. I don't know that I've had one. Every Monday, I, I wish, oh, this is going to be a typical work week. And, and it might start off that way. And then it just takes one email or one phone call. And I no longer have a typical work week. But I would say in general, you know, I, I get into the office you know, on Monday and you, know, you kind of check the emails and what is on the to-do list from last week that you didn't get done. You know, you got to bump it up to this week. Every Monday, I have a staff meeting, and these are really important to me in that it sets the tone for the week. And so we, we, we have a staff meeting. We talk about what happened last week, what we're going to do this week. I'll listen to any uh, gripes, concerns, or criticisms there may be about stuff. However, I do always end my uh, staff meetings, Michelle, with something I call good of the order. And that is I go around the table and I ask everyone, how are they doing? non-work related. Did your kids win a soccer game? Did you go camping on the weekend? Um, did you buy a new car? And the intent of good of the order is to not only share with the team about your life, but also to end the meeting on a positive upbeat note. Then it's, then it's you know, other meetings looking at invoicing, returning client calls, handling new calls that are coming in. I still do quite a bit of field work, so I'm out in the field, so I may have to get on a plane. So we do... Um, investigations and forensics, a lot of times those calls come in and, and those are things where you're jumping on a plane that afternoon. So you may have thought that you're going to sit in your office and do a report, but you're on a plane to somewhere and you're, you're going to look at a loss investigation. So really, I think for young, young engineers out there, if you are thinking about a career and you want something that is a typical work week where you go to the office and you do stuff and you go home, uh, we're probably not the right profession for you. But if you're interested in, in something different each week, lots of challenging problems, things that are not within the norm, then we're the, we're the, uh, we're the business for you. So, so typical work week, like I said, you know, emails, meetings, phone calls, site visits. I do participate in a lot of committees. Uh, so there's committee meetings and things like that. So uh, uh, it's kind of a, it's kind of a hectic week, it sounds like uh, when I listen to that, but it's the kind of hectic that I like. Okay, excellent. So one final question. If you could turn back time, would you change anything? No. I mean, um, no, because you know, a, lot of, a lot of people say, well, if I can turn back time, I would you know, not make these career disasters or these career mistakes. And, and I think those are valuable because they, they really mold you. But in terms of turning back time, no. You know, again, I, I love what I do. 
And so if I were to turn back time, I would do it the exact same way. I, I enjoyed my 20 plus years living overseas. I enjoy the firefighting aspect of things that I still get to be involved with. I enjoy the fire protection engineering aspect of things. So, you know, maybe, uh, maybe if I turn back the clocks, I can't think of anything I would do different, honestly. And I know that might sound weird or, or maybe braggadocious, I don't know, but no, I, I, I wouldn't do anything different. No, that's, that's excellent. Okay, that's all the questions I have today. I would like to thank Tony for your time. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening and see you next week. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd like to gently encourage you to leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with another person. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or via my website, www.michellefraserconsultancy.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.